Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're talking about Zizek, and we're specifically talking about absolute recoil. It's a much more contemporary topic than we've done recently. Absolute recoil came out in 2014. Zizek, of course, was born at the end of the 40s in Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was, of course, under Tito, a communist state, but it split from the Soviet sphere. And part of what is interesting about Zizek's background in Yugoslavia is that Yugoslavia had this narrative that it was not a Stalinist state like the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union, the bureaucrats claim to rule in the name of the people. The party claims to rule in the name of the people. But in Yugoslavia, there's meant to be this transparency and this openness, and it's meant to be a more inclusive kind of thing. Now, for Zizek, the ordinary Yugoslav knows on some level that Yugoslav state bureaucrats still run the show and that it isn't meaningfully that much more transparent. But the state's emphasis on transparency allows the Yugoslav subject to pretend that they don't know this and to pretend that Yugoslav communism is much more transparent and open than Soviet communism. And this experience of growing up in Yugoslavia, a state that was communist, but which claimed to be transparent and open, that led him into the study of ideology. Eventually, he makes his way to Paris in the 1980s. He develops a Lacanian psychoanalytic reading of Hegel. We've done a Hegel episode a while back. We have not done Lacan. So some of the concepts that come in here may be new to listeners. We're going to try to ease you into some of this stuff because a lot of the literature in this kind of space requires a lot of knowledge of other literature. And so it can be difficult to get into it if you aren't already exposed to the terminology and to the language. So we're going to try to take this relatively slow. I want to say one prior thing about Zizek's method and its relationship to the history of political thought. So a lot of people who are doing history of thought are trying to make historical points. They're trying to say, this is what so-and-so believed. This is what so-and-so is saying. This is what so-and-so meant. Zizek quite openly develops his own versions of certain thinkers. So, for instance, he says he reads Hegel against Hegel. He has a kind of idea of what the core insight of Hegel is. He argues that Hegel himself doesn't fully understand his own core insight and that therefore you can be Hegelian in ways which are against Hegel. You can think in terms of Hegel's core insight in areas where Hegel himself did not think in terms of that insight. And to give a a very basic example of this, Marx, in supposing that capital is the kind of all-dominating structure, uses the concept of capital in much the same way that Hegel uses reason or Geist, right? So with Hegel, you have a kind of march of reason through history. For Marx, you have this march of capital through history, and it's in this sense that Marx turns Hegel on his head, right? So Marx applies a Hegelian way of thinking to capital, a concept to which Hegel himself did not apply this Hegelian way of thinking. And so in this way, Marx is extending or using Hegel while himself contradicting what Hegel, the man, believed. So Zizek has no qualms about talking about Hegelianism 
outside of the context of what Hegel the man believed. And at points, he kind of likens what he's doing to the Straussians, where the Straussians will take different bits of a text or different unrelated, seemingly unrelated texts and read them together, read them next to each other and try to claim that there's some kind of esoteric or hidden meaning that you can only find by taking things out of order and uh, combining things that seem like they're meant to be separate. Now, the Straussians will often claim that when they do this, they're discovering the true meaning behind the original thinker's work, that the thinker was a genius and this is the true meaning that they're trying to convey. Zizek dispenses with that pretense. Zizek will do Straussian type things, not in the service of trying to get at what Hegel really believed, but in the service of, of developing Hegel's thinking in a way that Zizek takes to be useful. Right. So because Zizek does this, he sometimes gets accused of academic sloppiness by people who think that when you talk about the history of thought, your priority should be on the history. Right. But Zizek is pretty open about his goals. He's not pretending to do intellectual history. He uses history in much the same way Nietzsche uses it, where Nietzsche kind of pulls from historical examples to tell a story about the whole arc of the history of thought for the purposes of making a contemporary point. That's how Zizek treats history. So when we talk about Hegel or Lacan, we are not talking about the men necessarily. We're talking about Zizek's use of and deployment of these terms and these concepts. So to kind of get going, starting with ideology, uh, many liberal theorists reject ideology as a concept. The other day on Twitter, I saw a liberal who, who claimed that ideology is just a waste of time and nobody should talk about it. It doesn't refer to anything. Right. Uh, so a lot of liberals claim that when Marxists use the term, they're claiming that people are false conscious, that they're being deceived about reality, that they don't know their own interests and that this doesn't take subjects seriously, doesn't take their interests seriously, their ability to decide for themselves what it is that they want seriously. That's a common kind of liberal critique of the Marxist idea of ideology. Right. That it's paternalistic. It's condescending. It implies that the Marxist theorist knows what's good for you better than you do. Zizek subverts this liberal critique by suggesting that on some level, ideological people themselves know that their ideology is false. They willingly delude themselves. And it's because they willingly embrace ideology, their embrace can be framed as a free choice, as an exercise of freedom. This is the essential appearance of the freedom to not affirm the ideology. That freedom must seem to be there even if the embrace of ideology is sociologically overdetermined. And you add to this, this idea that Zizek has about knowledge. So Zizek thinks that knowledge and belief are quite separate concepts. There are many things we cannot have knowledge about, especially abstractions like the people or God or freedom. Since we can't know what these abstract concepts are, we don't have access to them, you can't directly uh, interface with them, our beliefs about them become very important because our beliefs about those abstractions guide our behavior. You can't know God, but you can have beliefs about God and those beliefs can influence your acts, right? Now, there's also an issue, and this comes from Lacan, of transference. So sometimes we know that we don't know something, but we believe that some other person knows, an expert or a political leader that we respect, right? So what we believe is not things about uh, the, the, the people, but we might believe that the politician knows something about the people, 
right? So let's say you think that some politician is very charismatic. You might think that that politician knows what the people is, even though you yourself don't know that. So what you believe there is not what claims about the content of the abstract concept of the people. What you believe is that some person has knowledge that you don't have. And because you think they have knowledge, that causes you to do what that person is suggesting that you ought to do, right? Now, these abstract concepts that you can't know, these are sublime objects, right? They're abstract concepts that no one can know, but that lots of people have beliefs about. So the idea of transparency in Yugoslavia, freedom in the United States, God in the Middle Ages, these are sublime objects, things that the state promises us that it's delivering, but things that don't have any kind of fixed meaning. And so it's impossible to nail them down and say definitively whether you're getting them or not. Right? So the inability to know the sublime object However, uh, just adds to its mystique. The fact that you can't know the sublime object makes it feel kind of sacred. And he re refers to these kinds of, ab of abstract concepts as capital R real rather than part of ordinary reality. They are terms that have a mystique that we take to be indicative of some great depth. But of course, you can't find them in ordinary reality. They're part of this realm of capital R real. Right. So when the regime uh, or the political system fails to deliver on the sublime object, doesn't give the thing that it promises to give because some people have understood that thing in such a way that the regime isn't delivering it. Uh, then the regime says that problems are are transient, that they're contingent, that they just have come about because of a specific situation, uh, that the people deserve the problems because in some way they've failed to do their bit socially. And therefore, they deserve to not get the thing that the regime has promised them or that some other is in the way of their obtaining the thing. So Zizek likes to uh, talk about how for the Nazis, the Jew becomes this all-encompassing category of uh, obstacles. Everything that prevents you from getting what the Nazi state is promising gets assigned to the Jew, even when these things are mutually incompatible. So uh, if Internet, if you think the international financial system is in the way, you assign banking and you assign greed and you assign those traits to the Jew. At the same time, if you think that it's uh, vice and, and uh, uh, poverty and, and the poor who are in the way, you also assign those characteristics to the Jew. So the Jew is framed as both this greedy, rich person, but also as this filthy, poor person. And those characterizations uh, are uh, totally contradictory, but it doesn't matter because the Jew has become an ideological tool of the Nazi regime to avoid having to confront the ways in which it fails to fulfill its ideological promises, right? Now, this sublime object is kind of like Lacan's lost object. So sometimes in Zizek, we see it referred to as object A or object petit A, this lost object. The lost object is the object of desire, the thing that we think will reunite us with the universe, allow us to transcend our circumstances, allow us to step beyond or outside of the paradigm that we are in, that we feel boxes us in. So the sublime object of ideology is a lost object. It is a thing that we think if we were to get, that would make us whole. The legal system, when it is accepted for Zizek, it involves a suspension of our jouissance, a kind of ecstasy that we have. 
Ah. The jouissance becomes the lost object that all of the stuff that we think that we you know, aren't allowed to do by the state or that the state is preventing us from doing. This becomes the object of jouissance, the things that we repress, the desires, actions and so on that we don't allow ourselves to fulfill become a source of jouissance. And the things which would give us this jouissance, we uh, we tend to become absorbed with. So, for instance, uh, someone who's romantically interested in someone else might view uh, coming together and having sex with or dating or, or marrying that person as a way of obtaining this jouissance and of getting a kind of lost object, a thing that they feel fundamentally uh, leaves them incomplete. If they were to get that thing, then they could transcend the state of incompleteness and be kind of at one with all reality. That fantastical narrative of overcoming the human condition and being at one with everything through some kind of object which enables you to transcend the situation. That's what the lost object is about. And insofar as ideologies promise sublime objects, often those sublime objects take on the role of lost objects. But we also have this narrative of the state repressing jouissance, of the state uh, you know, causing us to repress these things in ourselves. And therefore, to some degree, nurturing or creating this sense that some external object will help us. And sometimes that object is not the thing that the state is promising, but it's something commercial. It's something uh, romantic. It can, it can be anything. And the, the important thing is you have to be the one who has that thing as the lost object to see it the way that a person who sees that thing as the lost object sees that thing. So to make this very simple. If you are in love with someone, you view them in a way that nobody else views them. All the people who are not in love with that person view them as just another person. But you view them as the lost object, as the thing that will totally uh, save you and allow you to transcend reality. So you place this enormous importance on that person and on building the, a relationship with this person and getting it to some level that you wish it to get to. And this is because you have transposed your desire to be reunited with the universe or to transcend your circumstances. You've transposed that onto this person. So you think that through this person, you can get this thing that is elusive. Now, part of Lacan's point is that this thing that is elusive, it's fake. There is nothing that you actually lost. But you have, uh, as human beings for Lacan, we are constituted in part by lack. We are constituted by this sense that we've lost something that we need to regain. But because we haven't actually lost anything, this is transposed onto various external objects that we think will fill in the problem. But of course, if you actually get those objects, then you discover that they are unable to deliver the things that you thought they were able to deliver. So if you approach the romantic relationship looking for a person to be your path to transcending your circumstances, inevitably that person will disappoint you because no person is able to do that because there is no transcendence in the first instance that is possible. The feeling that you need to transcend stems from a misunderstanding about what it means to be a person. Now, uh, there are some differences also for Zizek in the way that pre-modern states work versus modern states. There's a pre-modern and modern distinction here. So for Zizek in pre-modern states, the sovereign is the master. Again, the master is a Lacanian concept. The master has authority because he is the master. It is assumed that the master has access to knowledge that you don't have. 
right? So, for instance, if you're in psychoanalysis, you think that the analyst has some kind of great wisdom that you don't have, and that moves you to uh, tell the analyst all of these things, hoping to get the wisdom that the analyst has. Similarly, if you uh, are trying to join a Buddhist monastery and you are prostrating yourself before some teacher and you're trying to get him to teach you, you have imagined that the teacher has this great wisdom that you don't have. You're treating the teacher as a master, right? Uh, the master, because he is the master, the master is able to uh, tell you what to do and you'll do it just on that basis because you think the master has access to this knowledge. You yourself do not access the knowledge, but you think that the master has it. You've transposed this onto the master because you believe that the master has knowledge. So even though you don't know anything, you believe that someone else knows things. Now that implies if, for you to be confident in that, you would actually have to know something because you'd have to know that the master has the knowledge. But you don't know anything, so how can you know that the master has the knowledge? The answer is that you can't. And so the, the pre-modern state for Zizek relies upon uh, us having these beliefs in the face of no knowledge at all that particular people are authority figures that we ought to defer to, right? So for Zizek in modernity, the authority of masters is challenged and it's replaced with the authority of knowledge systems, right? Like science, and the giving of reasons or explanations for decisions which which subjects are meant to accept. So in an ancient state, when if you ask why is the law what the law is, you're told the master made the law, the master is wise, and therefore you ought to follow it, right? In the modern society, if you ask why is the law the way it is, the political leader will tell you, well, the science says, or well... Uh, you know, the, the economics says they'll appeal to some discourse of knowledge, some kind of expert domain, and try to use this to give you uh, reasons or justifications that you will accept because of a shared acceptance of the authority of that knowledge domain, right? So, for instance, if we're talking about COVID policy, uh, none of us may know very much about COVID, but we'll say that the science says that this is what you are meant to do. And insofar as we defer to the knowledge system of the science or the knowledge system of the healthcare expert, and we take that to be, you know, those people have knowledge that we don't have. We believe that that domain, that discipline has knowledge that we don't have. We'll take on authority the policy insofar as the policy is connected to the discipline. Right. So instead of it being the policy is connected to the wise person, the policy is connected to the discipline, the mode of knowledge, the system of thinking, rationality, capital R reason, et cetera, et cetera. That's what characterizes the modern state for Zizek. So it's moved off the person and onto the discipline or, or logic framework. Right. So, of course, the reasons that are given depend on the form of knowledge that characterizes the regime, you know, in, in uh, Nazi Germany, you have a, a race theory, which is treated as if it were a science. In the Soviet Union, Marxism is treated as a science. In liberalism, you could frame this in terms of, of capitalism or the market or what the scientists say or what is profitable. These are discourses of knowledge that uh, purport to know what subjects want, what will make them happy, what will fulfill them. So, for instance, uh, you know, a lot of COVID policy is predicated on the idea that we know that what you want is for COVID to not spread and for it spread to be contained as much as possible, that that is, of course, the goal. And insofar as you don't think that's the goal, that's because you're in a death cult. You don't understand what you ought to want, 
right? The knowledge narrative purports not only to have effects about empirical reality, but to know what's good for you and to know what you want or would want if you were fully informed in the Habermasian kind of language. You know, if you were part of a fully informed ideal deliberation, then you, of course, would recognize that this is what you want. And a lot of liberal legitimation theory uh, comes back to, well, you might not be able to get everybody to consent to this, but if they were fully informed, if they had knowledge, if they had reason, if they have these characteristics, then they would, of course, consent to it. So, it becomes a hypothetical consent based on imagining the subject as agreeing to some kind of discourse of knowledge, right? Now, in this book in particular, there's a heavy emphasis on materialism, and on trying to find a kind of new foundation for materialism. Zizek makes the point that ideas only matter politically insofar as they structure life. So, when you live in particular ways, you perform particular roles, you practice particular rituals, the act of doing these things is a practice that encourages you to believe various things. So, for instance, if you participate in a daily meditation routine, the act of doing meditation every day will change the way you think and what you believe. If instead of going to a monastery and meditating every day, you go to the office and you are a banker and you bank every day, then being a banker every day and going through all of the different motions that a banker goes through, that will acculturate you to think in a different way, right? Uh, if you and, and you can see a certain connection here, I think, to the theurgic ritual uh, and theurgic virtue that we've talked about on previous episodes. What for, for the Platonist is valuable about theurgic virtue is that it allows you to instantiate philosophy as a set of rights, as a set of activities and traditions that people participate in, which allows people who are not able to access these ideas philosophically to nonetheless pick up these beliefs through the performance of these rituals. So, the ability to translate the philosophical idea into a ritual which can acculturate belief in a subject is extremely politically valuable. And this is why a lot of Neoplatonists put so much emphasis on theurgic virtue and on this capacity to know how to render philosophical ideas theurgically effective. Right. So, at what point, Zizek says, if you want to believe in God, then kneel and pray regularly. If you keep kneeling and praying, eventually the act of kneeling and praying will cause you to have this belief. So, it's these ideas are not acquired through some kind of pure discourse or persuasion. They're acquired through habit, through ritual. Right. Now, I think that a lot of that sounds very similar to a lot of ideas in Platonists. And in Aristotle, and with Aristotle's emphasis on habit, we don't get a ton of emphasis on Plato and Aristotle in Zizek. Plato gets mentioned occasionally in this work, often in a kind of disparaging way to suggest that Plato felt everybody needed to be deceived and that uh, Zizek in some way wants to get beyond that. I find it kind of curious that Zizek is willing to read Hegel against Hegel, but he's not very interested in reading Plato against Plato. But every theorist has their kind of the people that they like, people that they don't like, people that they find more or less useful. Uh, one, a uh, couple more little points before I kick it to Alex. There's a lot going on in this text. So uh, on the on the issue of the subject, so the subject cannot know itself because the subject can't step out behind itself 
right? If you've ever played a video game, you know, there's the first person and the third person perspective. And in the third person perspective in a video game, you can often see more of what's going on, but you watch your character as if you were on a hang glider, you know, 10 or 20 yards behind your character. And you can see a lot more of what's going on and you can observe what your character is doing, but it's only because you are not in the character, you're outside the character, right? So the subject doesn't have access to this ability to observe the subject. So because of this, the subject cannot fully understand what the subject is. And therefore, the subject you know, uses abstractions to make sense of itself, like the self. So through the self, the subject often takes itself to be special or capital R real, because this happens to be the perspective that I see the world from. I think that there must be something special about this perspective, something profound about it. But of course, if you were to observe yourself from outside, then you're just like everybody else. You're just a person. You're part of ordinary reality. You're n and you're just something material that is affected by everything material, just like everybody else is that you observe, right? So any attempt to ascribe transcendental meaning to the self or any other sublime concept, uh, going back to transparency or to freedom or to God, uh, it presupposes knowledge of some beyond to which we do not have access for Zizek. So we cannot see ourselves, so we can only speculate about ourselves in the same way that the religious person speculates about God. The religious person can't know God because the religious person can't step out of ordinary everyday existence and directly confront God. So the religious person can only have beliefs about, right? In the same way, we can only have beliefs about self. We can't actually know self. And therefore, the self is like all of these other abstract concepts, potentially ideologically rooted concept. Uh, it, as far as the political change goes, Zizek is a lot like Schmidt in that Zizek thinks that the founding act of giving the law can be repeated in a way that changes the parameters of what is permitted or what is ideologically promised, right? So for Schmidt, there's this sovereign dictator, this protector who reorients the society and, and redefines what the people are and then gives a new uh, constitution or gives a new set of laws on the basis of this redefinition of what the people are, right? Uh, in a similar kind of way, for Zizek, you can have this kind of big change where there's a new founding act, the law is made again anew fresh, right? In the United States, the constitution is is developed, but the there's, of course, a time before the Constitution was developed. The giving of the Constitution uh, creates our sense of what's legal and what's permissible and what are the ideological constraints are in the United States. But there was, of course, a time before the Constitution. The Constitution had to come out of some prior situation. And so in the same way, this kind of founding act could be repeated. And in this way, you could, to some degree, change uh, what is ideologically permitted what the parameters of the state's narrative are. Uh, now, there's a little bit of a possible uh, split here. There are, you know, revolutionary acts which change the ideological parameters. There are also utopian acts that seek merely to fulfill a, the promise that the state cannot keep, right? So, we could frame this as, as radically revolutionary change where the, the ideological parameters are, are changed in a kind of perpendicular way. They become something else. Or we could think about this change as a utopian extension of the existing terms and concepts, right? So, to, to put this very simply, 
a utopian socialist who focuses on the concept of equality and says, well, real equality, true equality would demand a lot more than what we're actually getting. Or a utopian socialist who focuses on freedom and goes, well, real liberty, uh, true freedom would require a lot more than what we're presently getting. That's a kind of utopian extension of the terms that currently underwrite the existing society. But say you were to adopt a completely different set of terms, say you were to uh, found a state on a different kind of terminological principle. If you do that, that's a kind of perpendicular shift to a different kind of language. Now, that perpendicular shift would still in some way need to be connected to what came before. It can't just arise out of nothing. It's not transcendent, but it would be more different from a simple utopian extension. And indeed, I think we see in Marx, part of the reason that Marx criticizes the utopian socialists uh, is that he sees them as just extending uh, or the anarchists as just extending the terms that underwrite the liberal society. Whereas Marx is hoping to do something that is more total and more fundamentally revolutionary. So that, that's kind of my set of opening thoughts about this text. I now want to turn to Alex and get a sense for what Alex found interesting as he was reading through and see how that stuff interfaces with uh, what I've been thinking about. So what do you think, Alex? Do you think maybe he treats Plato a bit, you know, dismissively on purpose? Maybe he's trying to incorporate him into this kind of dialectic. So instead of having like a thesis, antithesis synthesis, like the traditional textbook Hegel, uh, and that where the synthesis is some kind of improvement or upwards movement in the idea, in the thesis, like Zizek's kind of presenting it as like an undead, obscene form where it survives the loss uh, or it's kind of destroyed by the loss, but it sits, continues to haunt us somehow. Maybe Plato's a bit like, or maybe this is, yeah, maybe he's treating Plato like this, like the form of Plato haunts whatever's in absolute recoil, but he won't say it explicitly and he won't actually develop it. Yeah, so, it. yeah, it's interesting how people come at this stuff from different directions. So as I'm reading this, of course, the concept of ideology in Zizek is quite similar to when I use a term like legitimation story. Right. A legitimation story is a story the state tells about why it's legitimate. And it's based on certain abstract concepts that can be defined in different ways and are inherently contestable, intrinsically contestable concepts. Right. In a similar kind of way for Zizek, ideology is based on these sublime objects, these abstractions that we can't define, that we can't have knowledge about. And the only way you could have knowledge is to step outside of ordinary reality into this other realm. So the, the state and its leaders in claiming to have knowledge of these things are acting as if they can step outside of ordinary reality or acting as if particular knowledge discourses are in some way outside the bounds of our ordinary reality, that they have access to something higher or deeper or what have you. And I think that uh, there's a lot of overlap in my way of thinking about this and Zizek's, but there are some differences in the way that we come to it because the terminological background is very different. Uh, and for one, to me, Plato and Aristotle are a lot more important uh, than they are for Zizek. Zizek kind of positions Plato and Aristotle as conservative kind of defenders of just lying to people about reality. Uh, and I think you know, this is in part because they come from a Greek society, which is based on a slave dynamic. Plato talks about noble lies and so on. 
But as we've discussed Plato and Aristotle on previous episodes, a lot of the roots for these critiques are in this work. So, for instance, I remember during my master's at University of Chicago, that was the first time uh, that I looked at uh, Adorno and Horkheimer and Dialectic of Enlightenment. And I remember when I first went through that work, having a very difficult time getting the difference between instrumental reason and substantive reason. What, you know, what is the difference? And not being able to tell the difference is itself an indication that you're kind of trapped in the ideology of instrumental reason, that you can't see that there's anything which instrumental reason is excluding. Uh, that's part of uh, what it means to be in that in that ideology. So I was having a very difficult time making sense of that distinction. But what ultimately helped me to understand it was engaging with Aristotle's politics, where Aristotle draws a distinction between the vulgar craftsman and the virtuous craftsman, where the vulgar craftsman is doing the craft for the purposes of making money or accumulating status. The virtuous craftsman does the craft for its own sake. When I read that distinction, that made me understand the difference between instrumental reason and substantive reason. A society that's governed by instrumental reason is a society that's governed by the vulgar logic in Aristotle, right? And so then an Aristotelian critique of capitalism popped into my head. So if for Aristotle, it's uh, the vulgar craftspeople are not meant to be citizens because they lack the appropriate value set for citizenship and for participating in politics. They're only interested in pursuing money and status. And capitalism is a society which structurally forces us to be vulgar, forces us to prioritize what makes money, even if we would otherwise rather not do that. Capitalism, therefore, makes us vulgar in Aristotle's sense, and it creates a universal vulgarity. And therefore, a capitalist democracy is a democracy of exclusively the vulgar craftspeople. And therefore, it's a democracy which excludes the kind of person or the kinds of values which Aristotle took to be important for citizenship. Now, upon having that idea, I'm then able to look at Max Weber and Max Weber's discussion of instrumentality and of the, the problem with the bourgeoisie being that they lack political maturity. And I'm able to go, ah, he's saying that because the bourgeoisie are vulgar, they're not able to incorporate political values. That's like what Aristotle says about the vulgar craftsperson. So that gives me a way into Weber, which further gives me a way into the Frankfurt School insofar as the Frankfurt School draws directly on Weber. So for me, it was very pivotal to look at Plato and Aristotle, and, and especially in terms of Plato and his focus on uh, you know, the, the good being this abstract concept that you cannot uh, fully flesh out in language, because to try to flesh it out in language would be to distort it. It would be to imitate it. So if you take what Plato is saying seriously about the good and you apply it elsewhere, a lot of different abstract concepts, if you try to define them in the act of defining them, you exclude some of the things that they could mean. And so then it, when you're living in a society which says very straightforwardly, we're delivering freedom and freedom means this, this and that. Well, of course, freedom as an abstract concept. If you're going to say it means this, then you are excluding lots of other things that it could mean. And so in trying to nail down what freedom is in such a way that the state can straightforwardly say it delivers freedom. You have to dogmatize freedom and you have to treat it as uh, an ossified thing. 
And for Plato, that's precisely what you can't do with the good, because the good has to be constantly applied in different contexts in different ways. The good is is like, uh, you know, the ship captain sailing the ship who has to constantly adapt the understanding and the application to the conditions. So the good becomes for Plato the sublime object, the, the ideological concept that makes possible everything else, but which simultaneously can be used to critique everything else. And so I think one of the things that's kind of missing in this text is what is the basis for critiquing ideology? Why do we do it? So what is the purpose in uh, revealing all of these ideological dynamics, revealing the ways in which all these abstract terms are used to control people? Why does Zizek do it? Well, Zizek does it because he thinks there's something bad about these ideologies. He thinks that there's something uh, that they do that is not good. But Zizek can't uh, take the good as his first principle because Zizek has applied a critique of abstractions, which applies to any first principle that you try to take, right? So for Plato, there's an unhypothetical first principle, the good. And I often like to criticize liberalism by saying liberalism has an unhypothetical first principle, which is the individual or the self, right? Uh, Zizek's critique applies to all first principles because any hypothetical first principle has to be an abstract principle. So it has to be a sublime object, right? So if you take that critique and you apply it to everything, then it would seem to be that you can't sustain any kind of ideology, any and therefore any kind of state. So it, it, the theory reads to me a bit anarchistic, now that may not be a problem if you like anarchistic theory, but I tend to have this view that theories ought to enable you to do some form of politics. And indeed, when Zizek talks about the possibility of political change, he makes the point that what you can do as far as political change goes is you can have a new founding moment where you restructure the ideology. But if that's a valuable kind of political change, that implies that certain ways of conceiving of ideology, certain legitimation stories are better than others. And that we have some kind of reason to want to have better stories. And that implies that uh, the fact that the story does not relate directly to reality, the fact that it's about uh, some abstract concept we can't have knowledge about, is not itself sufficient reason to reject ideology or to reject a legitimation story. They have a kind of social function. They are constitutive of reality. Now, I don't think Zizek would necessarily have a problem with that. But I think some people, when they read Zizek, they take it as, oh, the fact that the concept is a sublime object that we can't actually have knowledge about, that's enough to critique it. It's not for Zizek because you can, through political action, change the ideology while still having an ideology. Indeed, that's the only kind of change that you can make. So the fact that the ideological concept is not accessible or knowable is not the fundamental objection. There is some deeper fundamental objection to the specific ideological concepts that we have now in the societies around us that Zizek doesn't like. And I think it has something to do with Zizek's Marxism and Zizek's opposition to exploitation and so on. And I, I don't think Zizek would disagree with me on this point. But uh, because there is this emphasis placed on challenging reality, it to some degree cannibalizes the political prescription that comes out of the theory. And you don't have that problem for Plato because for Plato, whatever other concepts you're using, you're using them because they're good. Uh, 
you are defining them in whatever way you take to be good or useful in the context, that constantly leaves open the possibility of redefining them as the context changes, as uh, your uh, beliefs about what's good change and shift in response to those con contextual changes, right? So, I think Plato in positing the good as the one object you don't challenge, the one sublime object which gives birth to all the others and which ultimately en enables you to challenge and revise all of the others makes a certain amount of sense. Now, if you take it in a very metaphysical direction and you read the good to be the one, and then you suppose that we're trying to return to the one from which we emanate, that does sound like a kind of quest after the lost object. Now, uh, but for Lacan, questing after the lost object is just kind of something we do. We are, as people, constituted by lack, and questing after the lost object is just how we live. It's how we exist. We desire things, and we go after them because we imagine that they'll mean something. That's just who we are. It's not a critique. The, the lost object is not something that we can decide that we don't want to go after. Uh, it's something that changes form. So, the particular thing that we take to be the lost object varies at different points in our life. The thing that we are transposing the quest for trans uh, varies at different points in our life, but you can't not quest after the lost object. So, I think sometimes this stuff gets read as a critique of these kinds of fundamental claims about what we should be trying to do, and I don't think that's what this is because it still is trying to be politically motivated by some sort of desire to improve things or to make them better in some sense. Does that make sense? Well, how did Plato miss this kind of evental or radical or earth-shattering dimension of, yeah, encountering a form? That's what he says about Plato explicitly in the book, and then doesn't d expand that point, which is, yeah. Yeah, yeah so this is the materialism. So uh, for Plato, if uh, physical reality participates in the good, so physical reality is less real than the concept of the good, which is the most real thing. And so for Plato, there is a kind of scale of reality with the good on one end and you know, maybe paintings at the very, very opposite side, right? You know, artistic representations of objects at the absolute opposite end. And everything is somewhere in between these things. So uh, to say that something is an event is to say that it is something which fundamentally happens in material reality. So, because Zizek wants to start from material reality and say that material reality is reality and that anything which is uh, po positing some kind of abstract concept involves a stepping outside of reality and therefore trying to go to some other world that we can't actually have knowledge about, right? That empiricist premise causes him to say that a real event has to be a confrontation with material reality, it can't be a confrontation with the idea because the idea can't be reality. The idea has to be something which is posited as existing in the other world but the as the capital R real thing. Sorry. Right? So, the direction that the theories run in is opposite in that sense. And so, for this reason, Plato gets accused of being an idealist. But I think that uh, if you there does still seem to be an implicit notion of the good in Zizek insofar as Zizek desires for political action to, to take place, uh, or at least the theory seems to rest on our continuing to affirm this, even if we are explicitly denying it. Uh, 
So we can say, well, we know that we can't really access the uh, some uh, set of abstract values. We know that we are just embodied and that this is just a, a material world. But we still have to believe that there is a difference between better or worse states of affairs, because otherwise, if we don't have that belief, we can't act. Now, that functions like ideology on Zizek's theory. But how could you do anything without that? Being a person is to be ideological. So it's not that, you know, he reads Plato as saying, well, people need this lie because they you know, are, are deficient. It's not that people need this lie. It's that this notion of a better and worse states of affairs is inherent to the human experience. Now, whether it's inherent to the human experience because uh, there is actually some abstract notion of good which exists on another plane, or whether it's part of the human experience in the same way that uh, the universe is made up of, of material stuff which nonetheless has ideas, and that suggests that ideas come out of the material. And so the good is the idea that we have as material beings. So in some sense, it's real in, insofar as it comes out of the material. And I think that's how Zizek prefers to frame ideas, right? Ideas, we acquire them through material experiences. And that makes them real insofar as those ideas then guide our behavior and encourage us to act in different ways. So the good becomes real insofar as our material experiences cause us to affirm it. And then our affirming it, our believing in that abstract idea has results, right? But I, for Zizek, it's very important to continually emphasize that that abstract idea that we've picked up isn't capital R real. It is a product of the way things are materially organized. But that it's not obviously the case that Plato doesn't think about it this way, because for Plato, you can only have philosophers in certain kinds of cities that are organized in certain ways with particular forms of education and particular habits and modes of upbringing, which result in being able to affirm the concept of the good. So there is a kind of, in Platonism, a theurgic and uh, an educational and a, a whole ways of organizing the city in which the distribution of wealth is very important. If there's too much wealth or if there's too much economic inequality in the city, that causes it to become philosophically dysfunctional. So there's a lot of emphasis in Plato, uh, in the Republic, on the way in which the city is materially constituted affecting the kinds of ideas that people have. Oligarchic man comes from the oligarchic city. Democratic man comes from the democratic city. The kind of person you have, the kinds of things the person values, believes in, are related to the city that they come out of for Plato. So I don't think that it's as different as Zizek suggests that it is. I don't think that the Hegelian contribution is uh, as profound as it appears, but it, it looks profound in large part because Plato is often read in a very vulgar way, in a very kind of two-dimensional way, by uh, people who have been introduced to Plato as if he were the seed principally of religion or principally of the idea of God, and who are looking to tear down the idea of God and therefore want to tear down the idea of Plato. And so they're looking at Plato as principally a theological or metaphysical thinker, instead of looking at him first as a political thinker. And I think it, with Plato, we, we see very clearly that the way the city is organized gives rise to the kinds of... of ethics that are possible, the way the city is organized materially affects the morality that comes out of that and the things that people value, the things that people affirm. So there is 
a material dimension to this. The fact of embodiment for Plato is very important. When the soul is in the body, I mean, even in Michael Sellos, when the soul is in the body, it is a f- in a fundamentally different situation from out of the body. The fact of being in the body influences all of this stuff. Now, Zizek, of course, says there's no soul and and uh, declaims that as itself similar to the idea of the self, an abstraction that we use to try to make sense of our subjectivity. And there's a sense in which Zizek may be right about that, but I think I think there's also a lot more uh, overlap here than Zizek really wants to admit. Yeah, I didn't fully draw out earlier what I meant by the thesis being Plato, the antithesis being Descartes, and the synthesis being Hegel, which is something that Zizek draws out on, but maybe we'll come back to that. Um, but yeah, maybe I should just ask something slightly different because... Yeah, what, what are you thinking I mean, how how can the left... Actually, no, how about capital being a subject and not just like a passive medium of exchange? So, yeah. Well, so this is you know, the Hegelian idea that kind of reason you know, or geist, if, if you take it in a more metaphysical sense, structures uh, what we do and what we believe. And so there's a kind of march of history in which the culture evolves uh, in accordance with Geist or in accordance with reason, right? So you have a kind of right Hegelian who wants to emphasize the Geist or the metaphysics. You have uh, liberals who like to emphasize reason. And then you have Marx who flips the narrative by suggesting that it's capital, which is the all-encompassing structuring thing. So it's capital, which is the thing which ultimately drives the bus. And it's the unfolding of capital, which is the thing that is guiding history, not capital R reason and not you know, Geist. Right. So capital becomes the uh, the thing which is is ultimately producing the form of organization. It's ultimately the thing that produces the culture and it becomes, you know, in Adorno, the, the all encompassing instrumental rationality. Now, he doesn't say this in absolute recoil, but the way he frames that distinction between capital is just something passive and something as opposed to capital that's actively doing stuff is he looks at the stock market. So say if you're investing in a company, you care about how it performs and its profit. But if you're speculating, then it's more of a risk game. And you might just say, quickly buy up a company and then sell it before it gets unprofitable. So you're not really concerned about long-term profit. And in that way, capital can, I don't know, yeah, just start to derail like the, the social reality of yeah of production. Yeah, it reminds me of something that the French politician Jean-Luc Mélenchon recently said, which is that capital rules through its control over the short term, right? Because capitalism dictates what you have to do right away, uh, what you have to do on the quarter by quarter basis. It prevents you from dealing with long term problems, bigger problems that would require a planning far in advance, uh, where if you were to try to implement the solution, you would go bankrupt long before you could possibly finish solving the problem. You know, so similarly, when people kind of expect uh, corporations to take responsibility for conditions and change their behavior, uh, they're expecting these corporations to act in defiance of the structure of capital by doing things which from the point of view of capitalist reason, capitalist instrumentality, are irrational in the short term. Those things will call their, uh, cause their companies to fail or to become uncompetitive, and then they'll be superseded by the companies which continue to prioritize the short term. So eventually, that gives you a society where there are all sorts of long-term problems that have not been addressed, 
all sorts of contradictions that have not been addressed so that the short term can continually be uh, resolved. So when you have an economic crisis, you have to paper over it immediately with whatever kinds of policies will keep the economy kicking along and allow you to muddle through. At no point are you ever able to get out ahead of things or to make a bigger, bigger picture, longer term planning. So then I guess this is more of the question bit. Why does it or how can you solve this with some kind of algorithm on the stock market, which is, say, more effective than the trader trading? And yeah, individuals make their money through algorithms and then some mega algorithm coordinates all the individual ones so that when they yeah pursue risk at the expense of long term profit, the mega algorithm can step in and say, no, you know, We've got to support the state somehow. Well, How does that if you work? were to yeah. install that kind of algorithm, then that would uh, diminish people's control over their property, over the shares that they've purchased. And so that causes a problem on, on that level because it would be taken by, I think, many investors to violate their property rights and to cause them to lose confidence in the whole system of exchange. So at that point, if you are forced to keep your money in a position that is not advantageous to you, but is for the good of the society, that's a kind of nationalization through the back door, right? So through that kind of algorithm, you would be trying to nationalize the whole financial system, and you would get the kind of political opposition that you'd normally expect from trying to do something like that. But I thought the point is that already the algorithm is more efficient, at least on the individual level. We're not talking about the mega one, but yeah. Oh, well, it's, if it's more efficient on the individual level. So if you actually had an algorithm that could always maximize short-term profit, then that would, of course, only intensify the problems that you have with long-term. Okay. So it would still need... So a bit like when during the financial crash, within hours, the state steps in to save failing banks and gives them trillions of dollars, which obviously it, would, it wouldn't say it would do that maybe before, you know, two years before the financial crash, if someone asked them, uh, would you give trillions of dollars? No, of course not. But then in, in the crisis, it has to act, it has to save public order. So maybe in the same way, if the individual algorithms kind of replace a bit like a prosthetic organ, you know, it just replaces natural organs or natural traders. Eventually, this mega algorithm will have to be put in by the state and it will be in everyone's interest because no one wants the whole thing to collapse. Well, see, now, we're, now we're drifting into a kind of conversation about AI and AI goal alignment and uh, whether you can do politics through a techno Caesar. Uh, well, he talks Which, about yeah. prostheses and, yeah. I mean, a, a techno Caesar kind of thing, if you really do take the logic of capitalism all the way down, you know, then you could just impose some kind of artificial management of the economy. The issue is that liberal ideology works in large part by flattering the concept of the self. And so the AI, which knows what maximizes profit better than you do, uh, it doesn't know what you want in your I inside. It claims to know what you want inside, but the notion of the kind of liberal market system, it's predicated on the idea that only the self knows what the self wants and that anyone else who tries to claim to know better what the self desires than the self is engaged in some kind of totalitarian project. So even though something like that might on an, uh, ob you know, seemingly on an objective level deliver more efficient economic gains, it would run into this problem that liberal ideology has, has cultivated in people the idea that they know what they desire and want better than anything or anybody and anything or anybody which claims to know better than them is trying to sub subjugate them to uh, totalitarianism, right? 
So that the individualism is an important aspect of this or the, the appearance. It's the essential appearance of individualism. It is Im- important for this system to continue. I think Zizek would say it's more than just the appearance, though. It's like actually a legacy that Europe can be proud of, you know, when as in patri- as in like proud in a non-toxic sense. So you can have patriotism, but not nationalism. <laughs> Maybe we can expand that. But say, for example, uh, China. Yeah, you're saying something. Yeah, I, there, there is a certain amount of, of references to the people as an abstraction in Zizek, in part because Zizek comes from Yugoslavia, which is a state that was completely torn to shreds by nationalism and by the idea that certain peoples had uh, essences, ineffable essences that no one could understand uh, unless you were you know, one of them. And even then, you can't put it into words because it's this ineffable national essence. And so anyone who challenges whether there really is this essence just doesn't get it. But if you ask us to tell you what it is, it's you know a bunch of different contradictory things. And we're really into this particular leader because this leader seems to get it, even though we don't know what it is that he would be getting. And this is the process by which balkanization ripped apart Yugoslavia. Right. And so that idea of the people, there's a critique of the idea of the people here. So while there is a certain level of kind of Schmidtianism uh, or Schmidt-like stuff, there's also a critique of the concept of the people similar to Hobbes's critique of such things. You know, what, what, what does it mean to talk about the people? You have a bunch of different bodies that don't all spontaneously align with one another, but you call them a people and act as if they have a straightforward uh, common good that uh, just arises out of out of their what shared cultural background or what have you. For Hobbes, that was nonsense. That was uh, attempting to read too much commonality into people who are too essentially pluralistic. And I think Zizek would share this kind of Habesian critique of uh, Schmidt. Zizek seems to, at many points, suggest that the level of unity postulated by the ideology is, of course, false. It's predicated on uh, pretending to have a notion of the nation or pretending to have a notion of the ethnicity that you you can't actually have because these are abstract terms that don't correspond to anything. So there is, I think, an acknowledgement of the hollowness of, of nationalism. Yet at the same time, because Zizek insists at so many points that ideology is the only way that you can have any kind of social order and that contradictions are inherent to all social orders. It's not clear that this in and of itself is reason enough to oppose nationalist ideology. Uh, There is this pretense of you could take some kind of political act which would enable you to refound the law, re-give the law, and make up something new. But it's not clear from just the study of ideology what it would be preferable to do. Zizek, in positioning himself as a Marxist, suggests that there is something, uh, that there's a particular direction he would like to refound the law in. But there isn't a ton of specificity with regard to that. The specificity is given in the discussion of ideology or in the discussion of the subject, not in the discussion of what ought to replace or what ought to be the new thing. In in many ways, Zizek is a kind of uh, discussion about how we would even begin to imagine moving to something new, rather than an offering of what in particular new we ought to do. So you look for things that are a deadlock, a failure, impossible, yet still somehow work or seem to actually uphold the whole order, you know? So almost like in China, it's very efficient to have an ideology of complete unregulated, well, not unregulated, 
How about just brutal free market capitalism mixed with a big regulating state, which is the two things that the left were against in the 20th century. Yet it's very efficient to combine them. And he wouldn't say that it's ethical to go in that direction, but we could learn a lot from, yeah, that, that failure, that deadlock. Yeah, and I think I would similarly say we learn a lot by studying the legitimation stories, the legitimation narratives of states, and in thinking about and looking at which ones work and which ones don't, and how do you move from one to another? How do you go from a state which has something like divine right of kings to something which is founded on representative democracy? Uh, how do you get from that focus on God as the ideological abstraction to something like the people or something like freedom as the concept which is doing the work. Uh, we have seen change over time in which particular concepts do the work. And there's always some connection between the new concepts and the old ones. And a lot of what we've done on this show in the past is kind of looking at how you move from one concept to another. So, for instance, a little while back, we, we did the Aquinas episode on Deregno, and we were talking about the natural. And then we started doing Locke and talking about Locke's version of that. And Locke's version of that is very different. And yet, sometimes Locke is positioned as if he were uh, a liberal who is much more like a modern thinker than someone who is in that discourse about the natural that comes down to us from Aquinas. Uh, because his version of the natural is so different from Aquinas's that you can go off of it and uh, explore through his theory of property uh, other ways of conceiving of, of politics and of the subject. So Locke kind of sits as this, you know, often kind of pitched as this transition figure as either the kind of last of these natural law uh, very religious thinkers, or as the first of these liberal thinkers, depending on who you ask. And I think it makes more sense to read him as the former than the latter. But uh, this this passage from certain particular legitimation narratives to other legitimation narratives, from focusing on one particular sublime object to another sublime object, how you get from one to the other when one seems to be you know, so totalizing, uh, that even when you point out its contradictions and its deficiencies, it, it still is able to subsist, even in the face of those things having been pointed out. Uh, that is, I think, if you want to change society in a really big way, uh, where you have to begin. And in that respect, I think that Zizek is, is right on the money. So we're at just about an hour. Do you have anything else before we wrap up? Or Um... I mean, yeah, but... There's always more. Yeah. Anything really good? Oh, I don't know about that, to be honest. And quick? Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, <laughs> no, I think we'll leave it for now. Yeah, we can always return to, to Zizek and do another book at some point. Yeah, yeah there's a, the, a lot more. That's the charm of, of doing it about one book. It gives you a big excuse to come back. So, thank you guys so much for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.